This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. I'd like to say right at the outset that I'm doing this introduction under protest, and I don't normally speak in the third person. With that said, here we go. Mario Trimble is much more than a commanding voice. He's a man who leans into his vulnerability and loves people. A partner at QTAC Rock LLP, focusing on public finance, Mario devotes time to the Colorado Bar Association, Denver Bar Association, and Sam Carey Bar Association in order to feed his soul. Originally from Alabama, his educational path was marked with unique opportunities, racial tension, and a deep appreciation for each person who's had an impact on him. Once dreaming of an Olympic birth in fencing, Mario shared some of his life experiences with Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparaza, including how he tries to live in a way that impacts people on a personal level, and how his love of the city opened his mind to new opportunities, and led him to Colorado. Welcome to Our Voices. Today we are with Mario Trimble, who is a partner at Kutak Rock LLP. He is a consummate volunteer with the CBA and DBA, and he also happens to be my twin, but we'll get into that a little bit more later. I'm Courtney Holm. I am an attorney at Courtney Holm & Associates in Edwards, Colorado, focusing on mediation, family law, criminal defense, and civil litigation. And my co-host today is... My name is Nicole Sparaza, and I'm a solo practitioner in the Denver metro area practicing civil litigation and family law. And so, Mario, welcome. We are so delighted you could join us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Courtney. Twin, I should say. Uh, so let's is... explain that a little, Mario. <laughs> since uh, yes. If you look at us on the outside, I don't know if people would say we were twins. Uh, maybe some, you, know, you have to be really discerning. There are some subtle differences, I suppose. <laughs> uh, no, we are very close friends. We are twins on the inside. Um, you have been my, my wonder twin on uh, a number of uh, CBA and, and, and related endeavors. And uh, it's scary how much we think alike. We, we even finish each other's sentences, but we'll try not to do that today in the effort of good listening. That's true. Sentences, but not sandwiches for all you frozen fans out there. <laughs> I got that reference because I have a two and a half year old. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> but so Mario, we have this great opportunity to talk about you today and who you were, who you are, and who you think you might be in the future. And so let's, let's jump into who you were growing up. What was, what was your house like? What's your family like? Tell us a little bit about uh, little tiny Mario. Who was I? It's a great question. Um, I am the son of educators. I uh, was born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama, middle-class family. Uh, I have I had two older brothers growing up. Uh, lost my oldest when I was 12 uh, to uh, his battle with cancer. Very rich experience for me personally, but it's, you know, there was nothing uncommon. I didn't have any, didn't get superpowers when I became a teenager, <laughs> no radioactive spider. Um, but you don't have an accent from, from Alabama. No, no, I don't. So Montgomery is a great 
town. Um, it's a small town struggling. It's a big city struggling to stay a small town, really. Um, there is a great Air Force base there, Maxwell Air Force Base. And uh, as a child, a lot of my classmates, friends were the children of international officers who would come to the Air War College or the Inter International Officers School uh, for education. And so I never really developed my own accent. I would pick up the accents of my little playmates. In fact, I had an Australian accent for a <laughs> while. Yeah, because my best friends, two brothers, Lee and Tracy Downey, were from Melbourne. And <laughs> I, you know, I, I hate Vegemite, so let's not go there. But I, would, you know, I learned a lot of these Aussie phrases, and um, that was my experience. That's probably why uh, I have a little bit of an ear for languages, even though I... I haven't put in the work to really develop it. That is interesting because I lived in the South in Georgia for a couple of years while my dad was stationed at Fort Benning. And I did leave the South with a Southern accent. It sticks with you in your subconscious. Now, you know, if I get really excited or overindulge, it'll come out. Trust me. <laughs> and my only interaction with Alabama actually was not just Roll Tide. But also, we would go to the space camp that's in Alabama. Was every school annual function or um, extracurricular activity at that space camp? So here's a funny thing, though. So the space camp's in Huntsville. And growing, in, growing up in Montgomery, pardon me, I longed to go to the space camp. And they had the varying levels. There's space camp, space academy, and so on. I actually won a competition when I was in middle school, we called it junior high school in Alabama, and I got to go to the space camp. One of my, my brushes with greatness, uh, the, <laughs> the president at the time showed up, and, and we all the whole class got a photo with him. I, it was like COVID back then because I didn't get very close to him, let me tell you. But uh, yeah, <laughs> neat experience. So you had, you had your brother that you lost uh, when he was only 12, or you were 12? I was 12. He was actually, yeah, he was uh, 23. And it was a really, um, gosh, uh, you know, quick progression of the illness. He had lung cancer, never smoked a day in his life. Um, mm. But uh, uh, it, there's some speculation. He did a lot of research and he was around chemicals. And so there was some speculation that he got exposed to something. And um, But yeah, he went pretty quickly. Uh, I still remember him pretty vividly. And uh, thankfully, most of my memories are uh, of him before uh, he had to go through the illness. But yeah, it, it was one of a number of sort of pivotal experiences in my life uh, going through or, or witnessing, you know, what it did to him, what it did to my parents. Um, you know, my older brother went from being the middle child and, and you know, loving and languishing in the anonymity of being the middle child to uh, suddenly being big brother and... Uh, I just got to be little brother, which was awesome. <laughs> Getting away with everything. Mario, tell us what your family was like, because I know that you have a brother that is also a minister and you are no, <laughs> no stranger to storytelling. You're quite captivating for people. Thank so you. there must've been something going on at your dinner table that gave both you and your brother such a gift. I have to credit my father for that. Um, my, you know, it's, it's odd growing up, uh, you know, black kid in Alabama. Um, I didn't have 
that sort of central casting experience. You know, if you, I'm sure, well, first of all, we're not a monolith. Let me start with that. <laughs> None of us is a monolith, but as a black man, I have to say that we are not a monolith. And so I'm a big nerd. I love science fiction. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of country music, but I love classical and all kinds of other music. Um, and a lot of that came from my father and his, you know, he was my first representation of sort of a Renaissance man. Um, he taught me the, the joy in language and turning a phrase and a good story. He and my grandfather would, uh, sit on my, on the back porch of, of my grandparents' farmhouse, uh, in the country and, in, 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 uh, just outside of Auburn, Alabama. You know, it was my first experience with tofu in the eighties. Oh. Yeah. Um, was it a good experience with tofu? Actually, it was. It was. Uh, I was a vegetarian for a period of time. Um, really? I was. I was. My favorite dish was lasagna. And I vividly remember my mom coming into my bedroom one night saying, I made your favorite lasagna. And it just didn't appeal to me. And I said, I'm a vegetarian. And that was it. I was a vegetarian How for the next seven you? years. Oh, I had to be nine I think and for seven years you just turned on the switch yeah and then I had uh, a similar experience going back into eating meat was that like a light switch as well that you just woke up one morning and said I'm I'm gonna start eating meat again yeah I was into sports um you know in, in high school I played soccer in college I learned to fence and um you can absolutely be a vegetarian and do those things but at that time, my thinking was that I needed to have more protein mm -hmm. to bulk up and whatever. So, yeah, just made the switch. Huh. Now, Mario, only because it doesn't come up in conversation as frequently as soccer, how did you get into fencing? Honestly, I walked on my senior year in college. Uh, I So, and we're fast forwarding a lot, and, which is a good thing. But it's, my life was kind of boring up to a certain point. But um I ended up going to Yale out of high school, um, and I had never been exposed to things like fencing, and and you know I did debate in high school, but the the level of competition in college for debate and, and, and the political unions you got exposed to, and all these other experiences were just so overwhelming that I kind of jumped in to the deep end and tried everything I could, probably to the detriment of my grades, because you know sitting in class was not nearly as exciting as exploring all of these other opportunities that I had never gotten to, to um, take advantage of. Well, a friend of mine was on the fencing team and we were fall of my senior year across from each other at what was called the Frosh Bazaar, which was basically the, um, the opportunity for all of the extracurricular activities, the sporting teams, the, you know, the debate team, the, you name it, they were all lined up in um, old campus, which is sort of the, the Frosh Bazaar, the, the Frosh Commons at, at Yale. Um, and we would just try to grab passersby and tell them about our various organizations. Well, I was manning the, I was in a singing group all throughout college. I was manning my singing group booth and a buddy of mine was at the fencing team booth across the way. And I think it was in the, you know, the undergraduates were in the middle of, of class period. And so we had a quiet time and we're just chatting. And I said, you know, fencing is wonderful. I, I, I wish I had thought to try it earlier in my, in my college career. It's probably too late now. He said, no, no, sign up. It's fine. Sign up. <laughs> so I sign up as a senior, you know, a, a rising senior. 
walk in to the first, you can't see me on, on the podcast, but I'm giving air quotes, organizational meeting in corduroys, boots, and a sweater. And the coach, Henry Haratunian, um, says, all right, put your books down, start running. It was the first practice and no one had bothered to tell me. So for the next two hours, I sweated my way through running up and down stairs, jumping over a bench, doing all of these, you know, conditioning exercises. Uh, In very breathable corduroys. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's very I can only imagine the sound those are making as you ran up and down the stickers. (laughs) Well, see, that's... I don't want to say I was not in the best shape, but I was doing my best to mask that sound with the huffing and puffing I did as I ran around. Um, (laughs) No, but I loved it. I loved it. I I saw some of the members of the varsity team actually getting to touch their weapons and train and do all these things, and I was captivated. And one thing led to another. Uh, Nine months later, the coach had me actually at the Air Force Academy here in Colorado for the national championships. Finished second team All-American that year. So you were the diamond in the rough in the fencing. Did you continue with your singing group during that time too? <laughs> I did. I did. Missed a few um, rehearsals every once in a while. But uh, yeah, I managed to do both and um, had a great experience. Uh, continued with the fencing. In fact, I left. So after I graduated from college with my one year of fencing under my belt, I decided I wanted to continue fencing. And that's what led me to move to New York City, where as my wife who will listen to this will will shake her head when I say the city. (laughs) New Yorkers call it the city when they're in New York and everywhere else on the planet. Um, And if you haven't lived in New York, calling it the city just sounds ridiculous. But I love it and I still call it the city because it's awesome. (laughs) But I moved to New York, um, got a job as a headhunter, purely to pay the bills. And I thought, you know, the hours are good. It's pretty steady work. This is my opportunity to really throw myself into my fencing and see where it takes me. I had dreams of making the Olympics, uh, graduated college in 97. So, um, you know, I had a couple of opportunities before I sort of lost my, or exited my prime to, uh, to make the team. Did okay. Was, you know, was ranked, um, you know, knocked on the door, sniffed it, had a cup of coffee within the top three, which is sort of where you want to be, um, but was nowhere near good enough. I mean, these fencers were amazing even back then. Uh, But I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Uh, And it uh, gave me a lot of of skills, a very particular set of skills, I might say. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, developed some great friendships, uh, but it gave me a lot of confidence. And I carried that on uh, to teaching some classes, um, doing some other things outside of fencing, but that was really a springboard for me in terms of feeling very confident in my abilities as an individual. I'd done a lot of team sports and team activities. Well, this was an individual activity that I really excelled at. Do you still fence now, Mario? You know, for years I said yes, for several years I said yes, but if you're a lawyer and you say, yeah, I still do that. It really means I did it eight years ago and I have all the gear, <laughs> but I probably wouldn't fit into any of it anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is like when my husband says, let's go to Moab. And I say, oh, I've been to Moab. And then he asked me when, and I say, that was just a few years ago and it's 20 years ago. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, but there's a, 
you know, here in Denver, there are a number of great clubs. Uh, the Denver Fencing Club, I'm going to give them a plug, are um, amazing, especially with younger fencers. Well, I want to go back for just a second into your into your childhood because I, I seem to recall that you had a car when you were younger. <laughs> this is why your friends shouldn't interview you. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. I assume you're talking about the Mario Speedwagon. Oh, yes, indeed we are. <laughs> Yes. Tell us about the Mario Speedwagon. Well, my first car was, uh, oh gosh, 88 um, Cutlass Supreme with, uh, it was blue with the faux wood side paneling. It went from zero to 60 in about two days. And it was amazing. I loved that car. And it became an extension of me. All of my friends knew the Mario Speedwagon uh, <laughs> because I could pack a million people into it. We would all safely, of course, we would, um, <laughs> you know, I would be the driver on the weekends, which, uh, you know, when I got a little bit older, I became the designated driver. And that was not always the most fun for me, but um, it was, it was our vehicle. It was sort of the shared vehicle for me and my friends. Um, uh, you know, my senior year, my, my best friend had gone off to college and his younger brother became my ward. <laughs> <laughs> so I would pick him up from their house and you know, I was like, yeah, he was the, the Dick Grayson to my Bruce Wayne. How presumptuous does that sound? Uh, but yeah, we were, we, we became good friends, uh, purely because I had to drive him to school. Since I mentioned the school, I'll tell you, it was called the Lanier Academic Motivational Program. It was a magnet school on the far side of town. Um, in a pretty rough neighborhood. Uh, it was a three-story building plus a basement, and the first two floors were crowd control. Uh, class sizes were anywhere north of you know 30 to 35 students in a class. Um, six class periods with the bells, and they had all of the normal extracurriculars that you'd expect. The third floor was where a lamp was located, and we were called lampers. And huh. the, the kids at the regular high school were called regulars which was really, really difficult to, to swallow. Um, but yeah, it was a very, it was my first experience with, I don't want to call it segregation, but certainly sort of this hidden split because the, you know, I noticed that the pristine environs of lamp were, were not dominated by people who looked like me. It was, you know, seven class periods, no bells. We had um, teachers who were, um, you know, really, really, really highly qualified professors who had, you know, taught at these private schools and so on and so forth. And the teachers on the first two floors did not have those same resources, were not given those same opportunities. And the students reflected that. Um, yeah, it was, it was an eye-opening experience. Uh, and this is in a school where the physical infrastructure mirrored that sort of history. Um, you know, Lanier, uh, high school in Montgomery, Alabama was always a strong high school, uh, in the forties, fifties, and sixties. And, you know, at, at, it was almost as if a light flipped, a light switch flipped in the late sixties, early seventies because they were forced to bus. And this school that was pretty heavily segregated was suddenly integrated and the funding went away and their academic programs went away. And 
So this LAMP program was the way to sort of uh, combat that. And on paper, it looked very harmonious and very, very um, integrated. But the reality of it was, you know, I was one of a handful of, of uh, BIPOC, what we now call BIPOC students. Uh, back then, we were just minorities. <laughs> um, but I was one of a handful of, of BIPOC students in uh, a class of over 100. Um, and uh, yeah, it, so I benefited from it. But you need a little perspective to really appreciate some things. Uh, I was you know, in the thick of it day in and day out. My best friends were just my best friends. It didn't dawn on me until years later in some instances that, you know, I was the only black face in a room and there were no black female faces in that room um, or very few. Uh, you know, growing up as an underrepresented person in an environment like that where you do have access to a lot of amenities, a lot of, of opportunities, um, but you're not really encouraged to access your full self and you're not allowed to access your full self in so many instances, uh, was a tough experience. It was a really um, painful experience in the way that a lobster experiences pain when you're cooking it. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to get there, I promise. This will make sense in a second. Uh, if you've ever cooked a lobster, um, and I've never cooked one, but I've seen them cooked, and it's it's... It's a little disturbing, frankly. <laughs> it's alive when you put it in the water. And the water's not hot. And the lobster doesn't try to climb out of the pot. And then you turn the fire on. And it starts to cook. And there's never that aha moment where the lobster realizes, I'm in boiling water. I've got to get out of here. That was my experience growing up black in that environment. Um, you know, I remember the first time, at, at least my adult self remembers being called the N-word. Uh, it was as a, you know, a, a child. I, was, I had gotten this wonderful Schwinn bicycle. I can still remember it. It was red and white. It had the, you know, the handlebars were, were streamlined, and it was great. And we lived at the top of a hill, and at the, you know, the apex of a big curve, and I could ride my bicycle down this hill, but I couldn't cross the street. So I would go racing down the hill, slam on the brakes at the end of my block, and trudge back up the hill and do it all over again. Lather, rinse, repeat. This was, yeah, it, it didn't take much to amuse me, apparently. Well, the on- The thrill of going downhill. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I was like a dog with his head out of the window. Um, I remember, though, reaching the end of my journey, slamming on the brakes, catching my breath, and as I started to turn to take my bicycle back up the hill, this- station wagon wasn't the Mario speed wagon <laughs> but a station wagon with three boys what looked to be teenage boys went flying by and there were two in the front seat one in the back and the one in the back seat leaned out of his window and screamed the n-word now at the time i was more shocked and confused than angry it's not that first sensation you have it's when the recognition hits that they were talking to you, that that was aimed at you. And it wasn't a nice thing. It was intended to hurt you. 
I'm 45. I'll be 46 this year. That was over 30 years ago. And I still remember that guy's face pretty vividly. There are three moments in my life that I will never, ever lose. The day my grandfather died, 9-11, and that day. How did that day change you, Mario? For, I mean, obviously going from that innocence of speeding down the hill to having that stark realization and somebody using such a hateful term. That's a great question. Um, I don't think it changed me immediately. I think it has changed me profoundly over the years. Because what stuck with me in the moment really was, you know, not, this is terrible, this is an injustice, it has to, I have to, you know, I deserve redress. No, it was, I hope no one ever feels the way I feel. Mm-hmm. And what can I do to make sure that no one ever feels the way I feel? So I'm curious because I feel like when biopic people experience the first overt act of hatred towards them, it's like you're describing, it's a profound experience for us internally, but I feel like every person manifests differently from it. Some people keep it to themselves. Other people can tell their family, maybe a teacher, um, certainly friends. What was your way of managing this new situation and kind of if we're going with a lobster analogy, that fire being turned on for the first time? Because I was so young, I don't think I processed it the way that my teenage self or my adult self would have processed it. Um, I didn't tell my parents initially. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to tell them. And in retrospect, it wasn't, I think there was an element of shame. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I spent a, a while thinking, this is because of me. What did I do to deserve this? How can I change this? And that's not at all the reality, you know? I mean, I think of um, people who experience violence in, and this was violence, you know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't physical violence, but it was violence. Absolutely, and it was intended to be violent. Exactly, exactly. And so I think of folks who have dealt with assault on a number of different, you know, you can think of the types of assault that that people have to endure on a daily basis. the first thing you have to recognize is that it's not your fault. It's not you. This is a reflection of that other person. This is, and I think to this day, you know, I said there were three of them in that car. The one in the back seat was the one who yelled. The other two looked back at him. I still remember this as if it's in slow motion. They didn't look angry or hurt or anything else. They were surprised. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wonder what happened next for them. If anything. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, if they didn't confront him, which I seriously doubt, uh, did any of, did either of the other two go on to, to reflect on that experience and maybe have a different, um, view of the, of the, the perpetrator as I'll call him, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, was this one of a number of experiences that led them to some greater understanding and some epiphany in their own lives? I hope so, because if that's the case, then that was a, you know, there is a, a, a silver lining on that experience. I'm not optimistic, but mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know that that's particularly a vulnerable story and um, one that is hard to talk about because there is a lot of shame there and not for any fault of you or a biopic person, but um, it is a sensitive topic because we do take that so personally and it's about something that we can't change about ourselves. I wonder two things. One, if that same incident occurred today and, and it was your child that that happened to, what would you tell them or how would you tell them to think of that? Because you mentioned it took you a little bit of time to get over the shock and kind of process that. And certainly when you make that lobster analogy, it certainly had an impact into some of the things, maybe even how you become a lawyer, but it took some time for those things to kind of materialize and be part of that recipe. So how would you handle that with, if that happened when your kids took that? I, uh, you know, I'm not always there when it comes to my kids. Uh, I can turn the other cheek with myself and I would love to tell them, you know, there is, find your line and don't go over that line. And if someone tries to, um, make you feel small or, um, you know, inflict hate on you, confront it. I don't tell you to shy away from conflict, but I don't believe in violence. I had a really difficult conversation with my daughter this morning about um, fear and stress. And um, yeah, I don't want to tell her story because it's her story, not mine. But but you know, basically, I said the things that you endure, I didn't have to endure. And that's a scary thought because I endured a lot. Mm. I can't begin to fathom what you're going through. But, you know, I hope that you know that you are perfect, whole, and unique just as you are. And nothing can take that away from you. The thread that I'm hearing from you when we ask you these questions about your kids is just the importance of affirmation. And those affirmations build that confidence. And that confidence, hopefully, will lead to being able to draw those boundaries and stand in those boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I try to stress with my kids something that um, my parents stressed or my, my parents definitely stressed with me, and that's that there is a difference between weakness and vulnerability. Hmm. Vulnerability is a strength. I lean into my vulnerability. Uh, you both know me. I... I Politically, not so much, but when it comes to emotion, I'm the John Boehner of, uh, of emotion. <laughs> and may not, you know, some folks who are kind of newer to the political scene may not know that reference, but John Boehner was the, the, um, the gosh, what was he, the House whip, House majority, House, yeah. Uh, and he was known to cry at the drop of a dime. And I, that's one of the few things that I really liked about him as a public figure was he showed his emotion. And for a man in a prominent position to show emotion like that, that's a powerful thing. So I cry all the time. And I tell my kids they can cry. You know, I hope they cry. 
Mm-hmm. When it, you know, if it, if it matters, let it matter. There's this great group, Johnny Swim, um, husband and wife duo who I absolutely adore. Uh, the only thing I don't like about them is they're so famous now that um, everybody wants to see them. And so the ticket prices are going up. <laughs> but one of the songs they have, um, uh, the chorus says, if it matters, let it matters. If your heart's breaking, let it ache. Since you sang in in college, why are you not <laughs> singing the tune for us? Because I am no Amanda Grace Sudano. That's why <laughs> <laughs> they are amazing. Uh, and uh, we saw them in concert one year um, and they were with this other group and they did a cover of On the Road Again. And the last line, the other group changed to say, they're so pretty, we just want to be like them. Talking about this husband and wife duo. And my wife and I have a little bit of a crush on them. That, that's kind of how we feel about them because they're just amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. So free plug, Johnny Swim, check them out. Well, speaking of being on the road again, so you were in, I think where we left off, you were in New York and you were working as a headhunter. How did you make the jump to law school? Oh, boy. Um, so there are two questions implicit in that, or two things that I, that I two stories I could tell, I suppose. In, in, in there's always at least nine stories you can tell in any question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be brief. I'll try to cut to the chase. Um, so living in New York City, the city, um, loving my job, loving fencing. Uh, I had reached a level with both where I really needed to pick and I needed to focus. And um, the owner of the company, I give him huge credit, uh, Ben Carocchio, recognized that I was at this crossroads. And he gave me, he pulled me aside one day and gave me two weeks off and said, listen, you're doing a bang up job, but I can see the stress is getting to you. I want you here if you want to be here, but I don't want to stand in your way. So take a couple of weeks. So I took two weeks off. Uh, that was the last week in August and the first week in September of 2001. I went back to work, committed, and I thought, you know, I love this job. I do love what I'm doing. The fencing is amazing. I can still do it recreationally. There's no way I'm going to make the Olympics. And so uh, I need to just, you know, cut ties with that a little bit. And, um, And then September 11th happened. And as a headhunter, as a technical recruiter, I had put people in those buildings. And, um, you know, when I talk about days I remember, I still remember every detail of, of that day. Right down to the smells. The smells actually are what stick with me the most. But I remember the lights flickering and the ground kind of shaking. And we all thought, yeah, this is the subway. It happens every day. Um, we didn't think anything of it, and we kept going uptown. Uh, we got on in Midtown, and um, I, where my stop was, I was walking uh, west to east toward my office and um, came to 6th Avenue, looked to the south, and saw the hole where the, the first plane had gone in. And, yeah, <laughs> chills, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now... There had been a small plane that had done something like this earlier, and so I thought, wow, that's terrible. Started walking uh, crossing the street, and a friend of mine who was um, pretty high up at, at my recruiting firm comes running towards me, and I'm trying to stop him. Uh, Tom O'Connor, 
good guy. Uh, trying to stop him to ask him what's wrong. He says, I can't stop. Bridget's down there. His wife is in that tower. He goes rushing down. Now, good story for them. She actually was a hero that day. Uh, she organized a ferry getting folks um, out of the that area and over into uh, New Jersey. Um, wow. I think she received an award for that. If not, she deserves it. But... Um, yeah, you know, that's when it really hit me that this is, this is not a small thing. Um, then the second tower hit, and uh, and then everything else happened. I don't need, we don't need to recount every every detail of that day, but that day was a big turning point for me because I thought, uh, on some level, this broke my love affair with New York City, um, which is terrible. And, and I it, we rehabilitated. I actually proposed to my wife uh, <laughs> in New York, and um, so it's got a special special place for us. Um, but I started my exit plan then. Um, left my job, moved to Philly, and bartended for a year while I wrote my law school applications. Um, now, as for the why, uh, the legal profession always held a certain allure for me. And oddly enough, it goes back to Indiana Jones. Hmm. <laughs> so, you Indiana. Like the hat or you to... <laughs> <laughs> well, he's an archaeologist. So <laughs> My first passion actually was archaeology. When I was a kid, I mean like, you know, 9, 10, 11, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. I see this guy. He's got the fedora and the whip and the pistol on his hip, and he's, he's so cool. And, you know, he's saving Marianne and finding the ark, and I'm thinking, this is what I want to do with my life. This is what archaeology is like. Now, anyone who actually, you know, studied archaeology or is an archaeologist knows that there are no fedoras, there are no whips, there are no pistols, there are no spiders in caves, which actually that part's kind of good. Um, you're, ruining, you're ruining it for me. It's a, listen, if I'm spoiling it for you at this point, <laughs> oh, you mean the profession, not the, not the movie. Um, I, so interesting thing, at the end of that movie, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it uh, in 1982, um, Indiana Jones finds the Ark of the Covenant this amazing artifact. They crate it up, it goes into a warehouse, and lawyers argue about it for years. Now, to my, you know, preteen brain, it it suddenly, you know, there's this epiphany that it's not the archaeologist, it's the lawyers who have all the power. Boy, was I deluded. We don't have that much power. <laughs> <laughs> but that began my uh, fascination with the law and with the profession and with what you could do with a law degree. That's so funny because I feel like most people watch Indiana Jones to cultivate their new budding love for archaeology and not <laughs> being an attorney. <laughs> yeah. I I told you I'm not uh, I'm not a normal person. <laughs> well, now you have me wondering, Mario, whether you are, are a lawyer thinking you're going to find the Ark of the Covenant? Is that why you went into public finance? <laughs> no, I would have gotten you know resources, natural resources law, or something else if 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 I had pursued that path. Now I so public finance, and I should tell folks just to sort of fast forward. Um, uh, moved to Philly, wrote my law school applications. Um, went tried to get into some schools in the Northeast, and and Colorado was my only school west of the Mississippi. And um, got into some of the ones back east, but I uh, got into Colorado, UC Law, and I came here chasing after a girl. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> got out here, loved the environment, loved the climate, loved the people, uh, was made to feel really welcome by the folks at the school and in the legal community here in Denver. Um, 
and I got a clerkship at a firm called QTAC Rock. I'd never heard of QTAC Rock before. The um, managing partner was this really, 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 really interesting guy by the name of Jim Arundel. Uh, and Jim and I are still friends to this day. He's since retired. Um, but he was the first person to expose me to public finance. Um, and uh, ended up joining the firm uh, after I graduated and um, have been exposed to some great folks. Uh, I could list off the mentors there, Tom Peltz, Dan Lynch, Bill Gorham. I won't tell their stories, but just so you know, they get the recognition in mine. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're actually afraid that if you don't list everybody, they're going to be offended, aren't you? <laughs> no, they deserve the credit. They deserve tons of credit. Uh, but, you know, in making the choice, I thought, um, you know, there are two steps to that, to that choice. First, transactional versus litigation or trial practice. Mm-hmm. I love to tell stories. Some folks say I should have been a trial practitioner. Um, but I kind of thought that'd be the easy way to go. And I was fascinated by transactional law. And I know Courtney's laughing now because, uh, you know, it, I, when I say easy, I mean, you know, that would sort of play to my strengths, not, not that it's an easy path because believe me, I couldn't do what you do. Um, well, so I decided to go with transactional because I thought I have further to go and it doesn't really play to my strengths. I want to learn to develop that side of myself. Um, and then there's the question corporate versus some sort of public interest, um, you know, corporate finance versus public finance. My parents had both been teachers. My dad left the, the um, field of education and went into um, uh, the administrative side of the court system. And um, I liked that public interest aspect of it. I liked the fact that I would be helping build infrastructure. When I talk to summer associates or, or folks who are interested in the profession, they ask me, what is it that you do? I say, well, look out your window. Everything that's not built by a corporation was probably touched by some sort of capital project of a city or a county or a special district or a school district or or something like that. So I get to build courthouses and and fire stations and, you know, fun things. And the folks I work with are public servants, finance directors, city attorneys, uh, you know, public works folks getting a tour of a wastewater treatment plant, not the sexiest thing in the world, <laughs> but the folks you meet are amazing, dedicated, wonderful people. Um, you know, there's a, a superintendent at a small school district who will not have meetings after a certain time of day. And it's because he has to take off his superintendent hat and go drive the school bus because wow. he's making, yeah, he's making it happen on a dime. And if I can support that guy, it's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. I'm not making rich people richer. I'm helping that, you know, some poor kid get a better education. That's, yeah. It must be the most well-behaved bus in the nation. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine? Oh my gosh, no. (laughs) Well, and and so you've, you're doing all these things. It's it's such a strong, powerful component of you because people are very important to you and relationships are important to you. That's very clear for anyone that knows you or just some of these stories that you've mentioned. And so you're very heavily involved in the Colorado Bar Association, the Denver Bar Association, and those are not necessarily things that are living in the world of public finance. So what are you gaining from those activities that you're maybe not getting out of these other parts that are challenging you? It feeds my soul. That's the simplest way to answer it. 
Um, you know, it's, it's funny you talk about loving people. My high school English teacher, one of them, uh, Sonia Womack, told me, uh, Mario, you would live longer without food than without people. And I, I guess she's right because, mm. you know, as much as I love the substance of my job and the substance of each of these things that I do now, it's the people and it's the ability to touch people's lives that as hokey as it sounds, it's what I love about it. You know, I really, I hope that I'm judged by the people I leave behind. You know, if, if I can provide for my kids and provide for my family, um, when I die, I'd rather have a big funeral than a big bank account. What are the things about you, Mario, that is so pervasive even today is you don't forget anybody. You remember how each person has impacted you and you remember their whole name. And some of these people are from years and years and years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just goes <laughs> back to that. I, I, it's funny you say that because I have a terrible memory, <laughs> but people have a big, profound impact on me. I, I um, you know, you talk about the CBA and, and you know, I stumbled into the CBA Um I joined the Sam Carey Bar Association uh, out of law school, joined the CBA and the DBA out of law school as well, but um, what was a, a lot more active in Sam Carey because I recognized that I needed support from that community, from the black community of lawyers in the state who had really poured a lot into um, me already. Uh, from Gary Jackson, who wrote me a letter when he was, you know, he's judged Gary Jackson now, should put some respect behind that name because he deserves it. But um, when he was uh, a partner at, at Jackson Demand, at his law firm, he wrote letters to all admitted black law students at CU to say, hi, I understand you got accepted. I hope you'll consider coming and here's why I think you'd be a good uh, fit. And it had a profound effect on me. I kept that letter for many years. Um, and I've told him, you know, that that was a big factor in my coming to Colorado. Am I choosing CU? Am I choosing to stick it out during some pretty tough times? Um, Judge Wiley Daniel, uh, just a towering figure. Um, you know, anyone who knows him, uh, you know, he was not, uh, you know, large of stature physically, but gosh, that guy cast a long shadow. <laughs> and I think you reference that with a song generally when we talk uh, about Wiley. There is an old most deaf song uh, that has that that line in it, but um, yeah, he's amazing. Um, you know, those were the figures who supported me uh, before I even became a lawyer, and they continue to support me now. And then there are countless other folks. I, pardon me, countless other folks I could name: uh, Y.E. Scott, Patty Powell. There, you know, I could go on for days. The the folks in the Black legal community who have supported me and who deserve so much credit for the work that they do uh, and they don't ask for any credit. Um, anyway, uh, so so I stumbled into the CBA thanks to Dan putting me on the, the CBA Board of Governors as a representative uh, of Sam Carey. And for several years, I would go to the meetings, quietly sit in the back row, take notes, come back, report to the, to the directors of, of Sam Carey and go about my day. Well, one day, um, Patty Jarzowski, who was another one of my mentors and friends and a huge impact on my, especially my, my professional life, but certainly my personal life as well, because I consider her a good friend. Um, Patty called me up out of the blue. 
I knew that she was the incoming president of the CBA and, and um, had seen her give a speech at uh, the Board of Governors meeting, and that was all I knew about her. Well, she says over the phone, hi, you probably don't remember me, but <laughs> <laughs> we met at this uh, event, and you know, I just want to call you up and, and talk to you about leadership and uh, this Act Now initiative that we have. Would you be interested in uh, being on the executive council or committee, pardon me? I was shocked. This is the, the governing body of the governing body for the State Bar Association. And she wants me to be a member. Fast forward five years and seven years. Good grief, I'm getting old. Fast forward seven years. <laughs> and here I am. Uh, you know, that experience. Number one, later that year, I met you. Uh, Courtney, you were also on that, on that EC with me. Um, it led me to consider applying for COBOL. Mm-hmm. where I met you, Nicole, yep. and we're going to have, I'm going to turn the tables on you and interview you because there are some fascinating things that I want to bring <laughs> out about your journey because you're amazing to me. Um, you both are. Um, I, re- I remember that day, Mario. I remember meeting you when we were both on executive council and you very brazenly went up to Patty and said, hey, I am here for whatever you need. And since then, I have seen you be on executive council. I have seen you as a co-chair with the Joint Steering Committee for Diversity, uh, Diversity, Equity, Inclusivity, Team 2 Messaging. It's the world's longest name, but it creates a whole opportunity for messaging and, and pipelines and getting things to be more transparent, you have been tireless. You're on Denver Board of Trustees. Uh, you, well, maybe you fall off now, maybe, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm, f- I'm falling off at the end of this term, but um, you know, that's another- very sad. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not going too far, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are starting to run out of time, so I want to shift to who will you be? Who do you want to be? What's next for you? You know, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to keep supporting the people around me, um, hopefully by my example, but certainly by my efforts. Uh, I, you know, I, I am passionate about equity, diversity, inclusivity. Um, I want to see more black attorneys, more black female attorneys, frankly, in the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just in the profession, but in places of leadership at firms, uh, with the bar associations across the board. Um, I'm also passionate about mental health. I want to put in a plug here because um, that's one thing that I want to become more active, one area where I want to become more active. You know, when you're a cancer survivor or a leukemia survivor, you're a survivor. Mm-hmm. When you've had a mood disorder or an eating disorder or an anxiety disorder, you're not labeled as a survivor. Why? Mental health is just as important as physical health. Absolutely. And our profession does not do it. We've come a long way, but we don't do enough to remove the stigma around mental health. My partnership agreement at my firm requires me to get a physical every year. But no one at the firm's ever talked to me about having a sit down with a, with a, um, an LS, uh, what is it, licensed clinical social worker or a psychologist or, you know, having my mental health evaluated. Mm-hmm. Why not? 
I could see you, Mario, being a very powerful force in helping to destigmatize mental health issues, especially for attorneys, um, especially based on all the work that you've done, just getting so much done with the DBA, CBA, Joint Steering Committee, Diversity, Equity, Inclusivity Committee, Team 2 Messaging, all of those things. And you've had all these connections with like Judge Jackson, when you're saying he's sending you a letter out of nowhere, you know, you're also that guy. You're that guy that's also reaching out to the people that you don't have any duty to, that you don't have any connection to, to inspire them and get them to that next moment. And I would agree with that, that personal interaction and that effort that you make to make people around you and people that you don't know comfortable and welcome is really an incredible talent that you have. Well, thank you. Thank you. Mario, we're so thankful for the time that you spent with us today. It had a lot fewer movie quotes than I anticipated, but we are (laughs) nonetheless delighted that you've shared such um, personal, personal stories and concepts and, and part of your life with us. Thank you for that. Yes, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you both. This was like a homecoming for me. I I love you both. Uh, You're dear friends. And I'm amazed by the work that you both have done in the the relatively short time I've known you both. Uh, I feel like we've known each other for for a lot longer than we have. And that's a testament to how amazing you both are. So thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Well, we appreciate it. And we appreciate your time. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team including Mallory Rebel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McCarty. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. (laughs) 